Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. We're glad to have you here with us. Today we have a discussion on masters and mastery and what it means for Christ to be a master, a master educator perhaps, or a master in other contexts. Uh, it's going to be a fun discussion. My name's Cameron and I'm recording from Launceston, Tasmania. G'day, I'm Ken, also from Launceston. And uh, I'm Luke, uh, recording today from Hong Kong. And I'm Lachlan, and I'm in Sydney. So when I read the discussion this week in the pamphlet, there were some very good ideas. Uh, they didn't, to my mind, necessarily fit under the heading given to them, uh, Christ as the master teacher. I think that uh, more accurately, they would have been a description of Christ as the master role model, which I don't think is exactly the same thing. Indeed, I think there's reference in the in the pamphlet to the formative educational experience it was for the shepherds when the angels came and when they saw the, the Christ child. I, I think having had some young kids that Christ as a newborn infant was probably not capable of, of nuanced pedagogical technique at that age. Uh, so it wasn't quite clear to me in what context the lesson was referring to Christ as a master teacher. The idea of mastery itself is something that I think is worth more discussion. I thought we might lead off if any of you, Locke or Ken or Luke, uh, can remember any time in your life that you've encountered a master, someone who's who's just so good at what they do. And what was it about them that, that made them a master? Well, I had at one point a very brief interaction with uh, a gentleman by the name of Glenn McCoop, who is an Australian architect. And I would not hesitate to describe him as a master. He has awarded, been awarded, you know, the, the most prestigious prize you can get in international architecture for essentially designing some really, really nice, unassuming, very interesting, very unique houses. Uh, which is not the usual way you win the most prestigious awards in architecture. The usual way you win them is by designing big, fancy, attention-grabbing, very, very, very expensive to build, computer-assisted, designed um, monstrosities. Uh, <laughs> and I give away a little of my own opinion about that sort of architecture. And he didn't do that. He didn't pursue fame or fortune. He pursued with a very single-minded focus, what he perceived to be good and valuable and important. And from listening to him talk about his experience of becoming the master architect that he is, the thing that I gathered most about what made him a master or what makes him a master is a completely single-minded focus. He just cares about designing good buildings and doing good architecture more than anything else. Mm. And he puts doing that above everything else as well. So he's not distracted. He's not bothered by doubts about whether or not what he's doing is really worthwhile and important. Um, he knows that it's worthwhile and important. And he throws himself into it with a level of focus that most people don't exercise in whatever it is they do. 
So I would say that it's that single-minded focus that makes a master, in my experience. I've jotted down some notes, Luke, and I'm going to come back and we might follow up some of those ideas, looking at them in the context of Christ's ministry. Uh, Locke or Ken, do you have any encounters with a master? I can think of a couple, but probably one of the most exhilarating was when I was a uni student, I travelled up to Grafton for a philosophy, science and theology festival, I think it was called. It was a collection of all sorts of interesting people from very different kinds of views of the world, but coming together to, to just discuss some of these things and to enjoy the diversity of opinion. And the master who was there that actually was the reason I and a few others uh, went to this festival was the Reverend Professor Sir Dr. John Polkinghorne, who was a fellow of the Royal Society and um, generally a very substantial and significant thinker. So he spent the first half of his career as a mathematical physicist, and I think it was when he turned 50, he decided that it was very unlikely that he was going to do dramatic world-changing physics beyond that point, and so he went and studied theology and became an ordained Anglican priest, and is an author who has written extensively on issues surrounding the interface between science and Christian faith. And he was a very, very pleasant person, uh, you know, as a personality. He was, a, he was an older gentleman from the UK, not a dominating physical presence, but really very captivating in his presentation. And actually, I had the opportunity, a very brief conversation with him during one of the lunches or morning teas or whatever. And I, I, my feeling was probably best described as awe, um, you know, being in awe of someone who was who had such mastery of the things they were talking about. That's my story of speaking with a master. Ken? Look, likewise, I think there are many examples I could give. Uh, but when I was at university, um, uh, I studied a very traditional Japanese martial art. And um, there were the uh, sensei uh, was uh, astonishingly competent in that. It didn't matter... There were many more experienced people than me that he was able to demonstrate and master uh, in the sense of overcome uh, in the martial arts sense uh, with apparent ease. So that, that was one example. Another is uh, uh, I've flown with uh, very experienced uh, flight instructors with you know, more than 10,000 hours of flying and they seem to be able to just fly the aircraft with a degree of precision in even difficult circumstances that uh, I struggle to uh, emulate. In, in my work, I've seen advocates who have a real mastery of the legal principles that will be applied, of the particular case, and simply the way to approach asking questions to elicit the answers uh, that they seek uh, in a way that demonstrates mastery and shows that they have the, the knowledge, uh, the experience, the time, uh, the discipline to implement uh, what is often theory uh, in practice in a way that appears to be very natural. The other thing that I'd reflect on about uh, across all of those things is that there's a degree of relativity in mastery so that somebody beginning would see a degree of mastery uh, in somebody with uh, a few years' experience 
that somebody with many years' experience would not see uh, in the same person. And the person with a few years' experience would see mastery in somebody with uh, many more years' experience or greater knowledge uh, in the area. So that, that was one of the observations that I've mm. reflected on in my experience with having encountered those who appear to have mastered their endeavours. Thanks, Ken. I've been taking notes. And it's looking like, as I glance down the list, that we're unlikely to fit these into a single episode. But luckily, the lesson has devoted two weeks to discussing Christ as, as master in, in the context of master educator. But I'd like to explore mastery in a wider setting. A couple of things came to my mind. One of them was, and this is someone that I think several of us knew reasonably well, um, Arthur Patrick was a master of words. And there was one occasion when he was asked by a, a very conservative church to speak on a very sensitive topic at a time of significant unrest and, and dissent. And it was thought at the time by Arthur Patrick's friends that they were, they were, they were laying a trap, they were lying in wait. To, to pounce on any heresy that, that he might he might say on this topic. And he was asked to preach a, a sermon. And when he got back, he was talking with my father, and Dad asked him how it had gone. Um, Arthur's views were not the same as the people who had, who had asked him to come and preach. And Arthur Patrick said, Well, they could smell the smoke, but they couldn't find the fire. <laughs> was his description of how it had gone. He was just very good with his words. Yes, he was. And that was one that was one thought. Arthur Patrick is someone that I came into contact with growing up around Avondale and a good family friend. And I just want to put a plug in there on, on, while we're talking about mastery. My experience of Avondale was so positive in terms of coming into contact with people who were masters in their fields, uh, but who were gentle and who were caring and had cared for their students and, and uh, sought to teach in, in a way that was, that was rigorous, uh, but at, at the same time supportive. And it was, it was just a very positive, formative experience. I just want to put that out there, partly because I know that Avondale is, is viewed suspiciously by, by many people in the Adventist church, but for different reasons. It seems that half the church views it suspiciously because it's way too liberal and the other half because it's too conservative. And uh, certainly I think anyone who aspires to thrive in that situation is in need of a lot of mastery. Another person who I met in that context uh, was Eric Magnuson. I was lucky enough to go on a bushwalk with Eric Magnuson through the Overland track, seven or eight days. And on, on this walk, there was Eric who had uh, a huge research portfolio in, I think it was covalent bond theory and um, the quantum mechanical processes that underlie the theory of covalent bonds. And um, there was my friend Wes, who was in his second year of a chemistry degree. And then there was another friend, Crystal, who was in grade 10. And on the second day of the walk, when we were walking from Windermere to... No, we were walking to Windermere from Waterfall Valley. Uh, Crystal, completely unknowing that she was talking to one of the people who had been studying covalent bond theory for more than two-thirds of the history of covalent bond theory. She said to Eric Magnuson, so, uh, Professor Magnuson, you're a chemist, 
you study chemistry? He said, yes. She said, well, I've been learning about something at school and I, I don't understand anything about it. What are covalent bonds? <laughs> that set us going as we left Waterfall and, and two or three hours later, we were in full flow. And Eric was simultaneously keeping Crystal in grade 10 engaged, Wes in second year chemistry engaged, and myself engaged. And I wasn't, I, I enjoy many things, but the honest truth is that I, I'm not as enthused by chemistry as I am by other areas, but it was very interesting listening to him. And we walked into the hut, which had about four or five other, other people, and immediately proceeded, accompanied by many odd looks by the other campers, as we'd moved by that stage onto uh, crystal lattices, and Eric was in full flow. We moved straight into one of the small sort of sleeping rooms and where he sat down for another two hours, kept everyone <laughs> occupied. There was, there was no doubt that he was a master and he had, he had many of the things that we've referred to. He made complex things and explaining complex things look completely natural. He had a wide breadth of experience. He was very precise with his language. He was obviously something that he, that he cared deeply about. Uh, these things, I think, all contributed to that. The, the last thing I, I wanted to throw out as, a, as an example of mastery, and it's one that's been a source of discouragement for me, is I'm getting into wood turning at the moment, and I found a fantastic YouTube video on the use of the skew chisel. It's 50 minutes long, and it's all about one chisel that you can use when you're doing wood, wood turning. The person in the video, his name I think is Alan Batty, demonstrates in succession half a dozen ways of using this chisel, and it, it looks incredibly easy. And I've thought that I would go through these various techniques one at a time. And so far I've tried the first one and, and turned innumerable pieces of wood into sawdust. And I have probably 10% <laughs> success rate. And it took me weeks of watching the video and then going and trying. And I'm sure I was doing what he was doing, but my chisel was catching and throwing a huge chunk off and his wasn't. Times like that you realize how far from being a master you are. Yeah, it's funny. We talk about the word mastery, don't we? Someone has mastery of a skill or of a topic. Mm. So uh, let's pull out some of these themes then and see how they, how they fit in with the person of Christ. One thing that you talked about, Luke, was that the architect was incredibly focused and he valued goodness and quality and excellence more than fame and fortune. And this is actually one of the things that our lesson did pick up, one of the, the verses, about Christ's humility. He didn't think, I think the verse that it quotes in the lesson is the one about Christ not thinking equality with God, something to be grasped, but being willing to humble himself. And you can think of that in that context, Christ having a goal and his own dignity being of no importance in comparison with, with the thing he's trying to achieve. I, I think whenever you say, when you say that and I, you talk about humility, uh, I'm no tennis player, uh, but I enjoy watching a good game of tennis. And one of the uh, things that I've particularly appreciated about Roger Federer um, and Rafael Nadal is the respect that they have for their opponents. The best Tennis players in the world, I suppose one will not leave out Novak Djokovic even, uh, perhaps some of the best tennis players of all time who seem to play with amazing ease. And yet there is a real respect for the opponent uh, at, at all times. 
and, and I think that comes from a humility uh, and a focus on the gain uh, that's bigger than the person, even one of the greats. Yes, I, in contrast to that, Ken, I was listening to a podcast today that was talking about a fascinating historical character. His name I've forgotten, but he was an actor, one of the most famous actors of the 1800s, really, really incredibly famous, and completely stuck up. He refused to act with anyone who was taller than him. He would fire <laughs> actors if they were too tall. He would fire them if they were too good-looking. He would fire them if they were reported to have been better actors than himself. He had a crowd of mates that he used to get drunk with at the pubs. They'd drink till they were insensible. And he'd, he'd miss shows because he was lying knocked out on the floor of some pub somewhere. And these mates of his, his drinking buddies, he would employ to go to rival um, actors' plays and heckle them and boo them. He'd, he'd, buy, he'd buy front row seats for his mates to go and cause ruckuses at other performances. He sounded just like an amazing piece of work. So when you do see someone who is who is good at something but is capable of recognising excellence elsewhere and, and, and being humble, you know, it, it really does elevate them to, to the next level of excellence, doesn't it? Well, I think it's it's somehow connected to being a master because the true masters don't have a lot to to hide. They don't have a lot to be frightened of. They are so good. If they meet someone else who's who's also really good, all the better. You know, there's not. Uh, I think I think that's why this this kind of humility goes with being a master. Mm. It reminds me of the C.S. Lewis quote, and I don't remember the exact book or context. But he says, he's talking about selflessness, or rather a lack of envy, a disinterest in self. And he says that it's, it's like seeing somebody else achieve something amazing and being just as happy about it as if you had done it yourself. I think that's a quality that um, a lot of masters have. Yeah, well, it's hard. It's really hard. My, my grandparents... Uh, spent some time at PAC, now PAU, in Papua New Guinea. And they, there was a local Catholic missionary who had lived in PNG all his life. The Seventh-day Adventist missionaries were, were sent home, you know, once a year. They were there for maybe five-year spells. This guy had been there for like 30 years and had never been home. He was living in a lean-to at the back of an industrial park because that's all he could afford. And he had been working to spread the news of Christ for decades. And he attended a outreach event organized by the Adventist Church. And he came up to my grandfather at the event, so ecstatic that so many people were being baptized. And he would have been absolutely fully aware of the sharp lines that Adventists drew between themselves and the Catholic Church. But he he was just so and he was he, he had been striving and and working to share in the own in the way that he could for decades. And it is quite possible that some of the success enjoyed by Adventist missionaries, you know, flowed from the efforts of people from other denominations. And it, there may have been, you know, you could you you could imagine him being a little affronted, perhaps, uh, like the disciples. You know, Christ, we saw someone else casting out demons. You know, what should we do? They're not part of our group. Uh, but this guy was just so happy 
to see people coming to Christ, irrespective of who was taking them to Christ. And that really speaks to this idea, doesn't it? Uh, you know, being able to be happy in other people's success is really hard sometimes, but it, it really does mark greatness of character. So I've got an interesting question then. If this focus, this sort of, I, don't, I can't remember the wording, whether Luke said single-minded focus or sort of consistent obsession on, on the thing that they're mastering is a feature of a master, then what is Jesus's focus? I have an answer to this, but I'm interested in what you guys have to say. For me, the immediate thing that comes to mind for the answer of the area of his mastery was the kingdom of heaven. Uh, yeah. That's what he spoke about. Uh, that's what he lived. That's what he demonstrated. And it was uh, how to live in that kingdom uh, now. Uh, that was that was his uh, area of mastery, if you like, and hardly surprising that that would be the area of mastery, uh, given his provenance. And that focus expressed itself quite differently in different ways. So the way he interacts with Nicodemus, I think this is another thing that marks him as a master educator, specifically. The way he deals with Nicodemus is quite different to the way he deals with the Romans he comes in contact with, or the the poor beggars who who's he's come in contact with, or the foreigners. You know, there's that fascinating interchange interaction with um, the Syrophoenician woman. You can imagine that there's so much going on in that passage. Remember when Christ says uh, the food's not taken off the table and given to the dogs? And you can imagine that the um, disciples were pretty pleased with that because it inferred that they were the children at the table and that she was one of the dogs. And she said, yes, but even the dogs get the crumbs that the children don't want. And I bet that that phrase echoed through their minds, the disciples' minds, as they tried to evangelize to the Jewish people after Christ had ascended. Yeah. And one can imagine that Christ, and it was obviously memorable because they wrote it down. And so Christ just can pick different times. And, and it's, it's single focus, the kingdom of God, but it's not a single methodology. It's not a three-point plan. He, he just works to the right context. Quite so. And, and on the other extreme, if you like, in, the, in this world, the way that he dealt with Pilate and he expressly addressed uh, the nature of his kingdom and its interaction with the kingdom of this world uh, in his interaction with Pilate. So on, on another, on a completely different level, uh, one yeah. of the, the, the ruling class uh, how he dealt with Pilate, and I, I'm not going yeah. to say any more about it, other than and go, go reflect on how it is mm. uh, that that demonstrates his mastery of the kingdom of heaven and its mm. role in this world. Just before we continue on, Locke, because we need to talk more about the kingdom of heaven. But uh, I was just thinking as I was making my last comment when I referred to Christ talking to the Romans. Do you remember when Christ is talking to the Roman centurion? We've talked about this story before, and he is just obviously so pleased that the centurion has has this extraordinary faith and i thought of that in the context of our of our comments about being willing to enjoy excellence in other people when, when you recognize christ recognizes the centurion as a master of faith mm, and it just mm. makes him so happy and when, when you're good at something and you find it done well then you know one of my um wife's piano students made her cry 
this week. Not because they were violent. It's because they played a Chopin piece that was done just so well. And and Mel said she was just really carried away by it. And it's quite possible I would have found it less moving because I'm I'm just less of a master. Yeah. Um so but so Christ seems to be really enjoying finding the kingdom of heaven. And he just loves it when it crops up. But it, it crops up in odd places. It crops up in the Roman centurion. And he's never threatened by it. You know, it doesn't matter where it crops up, but, but Jesus' response is enthusiasm and delight, never, never envy and feeling threatened and defensiveness. He's always just as happy about it as if it was himself. One only has to go back to Genesis and see his delight in the things of the world that uh, he created and he saw it and it was good. Mm. Um, and, and you just get this real sense that uh, he claps his hands and rubs them together and he's excited and, and, and waiting to see what the, what the next development is going to be. I'm going to chip another comment in. We can cut this out in the edit if we want. Excellence doesn't always get a good rap in the church. Uh, my wife has had many students say to her, I'd like to learn the piano, but I don't want to get too good. <laughs> Um, or to play so that people will like me. I just want to get, I just want to play well enough for church. Now that's that's a fascinating. There's so much to unpack there. It is the case that many people who perform or, or are excellent at something are unhealthfully dependent on other people's approval. Like that's that's true, and we need to be focused on humility. But it's also the case that enjoying someone else's excellence would have to be one of the most wholesome pleasures that we have. Mm. And and giving someone that experience. You know, I when I want when I go to a concert, I, I and it's, you know, Rachmaninoff, Mel and I once flew to Adelaide because there was a particular Rachmaninoff piece that we wanted to listen to. And you want it to be excellent and you want to be carried away and you clap loudly at the end. And it's such a wholesome thing. I remember walking out of a, a, a Tommy Emmanuel concert, the guitarist Tommy Emmanuel, and just thinking, isn't it wonderful to see somebody doing what they were meant to do? There's, mm, there's just yeah. a, a great joy in seeing a human being creating and experiencing and living the life and doing the things that the core of their being is designed to, to, to do. Mm, yeah. Sorry, Locke, that was a diversion. Let's let's get back to the kingdom. No, no, it's it's all good stuff. You're exactly right. And you jump I mean, Ken jumped straight in with Jesus' obsession about the kingdom. Of was God. that gonna be your answer, Lachlan? Well it was gonna be my answer. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I was hoping it would be something else. <laughs> no, no, I I don't think that it can be anything else. But I think that there, we do need to ponder it though, Ken, because if you think about it, the standard Protestant Christian answer would be that Jesus' purpose in coming to earth was to die for our sins. So then you would say, well, well, why then is his focus, because it is, just empirically, go and flick through the Gospels. Every second story Jesus tells, or almost every story Jesus tells, is the kingdom of God is like. You know, it's just over and over again, it is obsessing Jesus, this message of the kingdom. And in all three synoptic Gospels, Jesus, at the start of his ministry, explicitly proclaims, I have come to proclaim the kingdom of God and that the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning accessible and reachable. 
It's fascinating that that phrase at hand is the same phrase used in the Garden of Gethsemane when um, Judas comes with the guards to arrest Jesus and Jesus says, my betrayer is at hand. So it's it's the same phrase to mean something that is is near and reachable. So given the data in the text, in the life of Jesus, that his complete obsession as a master was the kingdom of God, I feel like it's a little bit unbalanced to to just have the standard Protestant narrative that Jesus's entire purpose in the in coming to earth was to die. Because if that were true, if he was a master of death, then he would have just come and died. He would have been focused on it. You know, I mean, I guess I'm sounding a little bit flippant and I don't want to be, uh, you know, too dismissive of this because there is great power in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But I think sometimes we fall into the trap of describing it like a suicide cult. Whereas what what you have identified, and I, I resonate with very much so, is that Jesus has a great mastery on what it means to truly live, not just to die. And the crucifixion log informs, you know, a lot of what Christ says about God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not one where people exercise or enjoy exercising the power they have. God's kingdom is one of restraint. There's the weeds and the wheat, and should I pull them up? No, don't pull them up. Let it run. We don't want to. We don't want to lose a single. You know, pull up a single good plant. God's kingdom is one of subtle, small actions. Mm. It's uh, something that grows within you. If you then look at the crucifixion as a teachable moment on what it means to be God's kingdom, uh, uh, what it means to enter God's kingdom, the thief on the cross, remember me when you enter your kingdom, mm, mm. Uh, is ap- apart from its role in whatever, and we've referred last week, whatever mechanism is involved in the atonement and whatever part the crucifixion plays in it, it is certainly a very teachable moment about what it, what the kingdom of God looks like. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, but I do think, Lachlan, that you make a good point because I think that we tend to focus on the cross and its ability to get us to heaven as if that is its uh, principal purpose and that that was the life of Jesus was there for that uh, and uh, mm-hmm. nothing else. But I think that what he did do was to come to teach us uh, also how to live in that kingdom now. Now, there are lots of challenging aspects of that, and I, it is true that it is not uh, what we do uh, that saves us. But that does not mean that we are saved by doing nothing. And I think I've said before, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. And there was much effort uh, in Jesus' life in the kingdom. And mm. and he spent uh, time praying. Uh, it took energy out of him. He felt the energy go out of him with the woman who touched his garment. There's still uh, a lot to do and a lot to learn uh, when one is living in the kingdom. And I think one of the ways that Jesus did teach that, and you, you spoke, Cameron, about him being a role model, he does seem to have a pedagogical method uh, of apprenticeship uh, so that what he seeks to do is to have apprentices uh, in his Mm. kingdom uh, that is disciples Uh, now Mm. that then raises a very interesting question 
how does one become an apprentice to Jesus when he is not physically walking here uh, on the earth for us to follow him around? And if you tried to follow all the directives of people who claim to represent Christ's, you know, what, what I'm trying to say is if you, if you said, I'll just, the church is the body of Christ, the way to be an apprentice of Christ is to follow the guidance of the church. Well, there's, there's not been a single church, which is, to start with, there's too many churches and too many different groups and schisms and contradictory statements. You, you couldn't do it. Mm. So it's a really practical, I find it a very practical problem. And I've got a worse practical problem, Ken, mm. about becoming a disciple. And I'll tell you what it is. In fact, this is perhaps a near fatal uh, obstacle. Adrian Plass wrote a fictional short story in which God decides that uh, things are a bit too complicated. He tried to clear it up with, with Christ's first coming. and uh, But there's been so much dissent since then about whether it's works or faith or faith by works or works through faith or faith through works or... The mechanism of salvation is, is so opaque. It's just going to make it really clear. Anyone who wants to be saved needs to try to climb Mount Snowden three times a week. That's it. And the story follows a whole bunch of, of Christian characters who are completely unraveled by this. And they're very upset that their neat systems they have for the mechanism of salvation are disturbed. But as the story emerges, and they begin with all these theological objections about how God saves by grace and not by works and all the rest, but as it emerges, what it becomes clear is that they, they don't, just don't want to interrupt their life. Mm. And what, what it emerges is that the people who have the objections, the honest truth is that by the end of the story, they're not quite as sure that they actually want to participate in God's kingdom. I mean, do they want it enough to shift house? <laughs> and do they want it enough to, to change job? Do they, do they want it enough to interrupt their overseas holidays? Because you can't go on overseas holidays. I mean, do we actually want to be disciples that much? And I find, I find it a very confronting story. Well, I've got some interesting comments on that uh, that arise from a really fascinating experience I had last year. A, speaking of masters... A master's student who I was supervising um, came to me and said, actually, I'm, I'm pretty sure I don't want to be doing this. I think I'd like to withdraw. And I thought, this is ludicrous. You're halfway through. You're more than halfway through if you take into account the previous year with some coursework. Just stick it out to the end and at least get your degree. But, but he did actually withdraw and he had some good reasons. I won't go into it all now. But I suspect um, we could perhaps think a little bit about this idea of... I like your wording, Ken, apprenticeships. Um, coming from my professional context of, of working in a physics department at a university, I, I work a lot with research students in postgraduate degrees. And I think that there's some interesting stuff to explore in just how different that kind of educational experience is from so much of what we think of when we think of education and teaching and learning there's a couple of other elements I'm, I'm looking through the list of qualities that we that we pulled out about masters and we've talked about a fair few of them 
one of the comments that came up in the experiences we shared at the start was about breadth of experience and expertise. Do we imagine of Christ to be an expert? Huh. Well, of course, there is that phrase in the Bible, he was tempted in all ways as we are. And his ministry in at least a number of the Gospels does begin with him in the wilderness, uh, experiencing temptations at the hand of the devil. And although there's only three, they do seem fairly representative temptations of claiming glory and power for oneself rather than s- submitting to the will of God and the, and the life in the kingdom. So I think that it's probably fair, even though we do um, very clearly describe Jesus as divine, it is fair to say that he was fairly experienced, I think, in, in many of the things that he was attempting to teach. One of the questions that I would like to ask is, do we really think that Jesus is a master? Do we really think that he is an expert? And if so, in what? Hmm. And, and how does that affect how we engage with him and relate to him? Of course, if he was an expert, Ken, if he was a real expert in what made a good life good and to, you know, maximize value and meaning. And if he was the ultimate expert in that and he said to us all, look, I'm sorry, you just have to climb Mount Snowden th- three times a week, that's it. And you really believed him to be the expert then, you know, we'd all be quitting our jobs. This is hypothetical. Let none of our listeners imagine that climbing three, Snowden three days a week is is the latest missive from God. But were it so, and we and we we trusted Christ as the expert, then, then you would follow it, wouldn't you? Except, Cam, there's one thing. I might not follow yeah. it. <laughs> I, might, I might not. And here would be my line of reasoning. And I, I appreciate what Adrian Plass is trying to get at with his with his little analogy but one of the things so the question comes about how do you satisfy yourself that someone has expertise how do you come to the point of respecting that expertise and i have to admit that one of the ways that that happens is that when you look at the kind of advice and instruction and teaching and life that jesus lived and you look at how people engage with the world around you i am forced to conclude that even if Jesus thing is all a massive big hoax and it was written by some charlatan, you know, and that none of it even happened. The point is that empirically, the life in the kingdom that Jesus is seeking to teach us about is actually empirically fundamentally a good way to live. And so what I would do before climbing Mount Snowden three days a week, Cam, is I would pause for at least just a small amount of time to ponder the the fruits of such an activity. And I have to admit, I may very well discover that the decreased blood pressure and general mood boost that comes from that level of physical activity might convince me pretty quickly that it is indeed the advice of a sage and wonderful master. And I might find myself climbing that mountain. So your your point there, Locke, is that if the message presented in the Gospels was written by a charlatan, it was a... It was a very unusually insightful charlatan. Yeah. And that there's a level of consistency in, in what happens. And it is, of course, possible to make mistakes. And you can trust the wrong thing. And it is possible for us to be deceived. That's another whole element in this. When it comes to following God, we have to hold in our minds that our picture of God might be wrong in aspects. And when we hear someone who we think sounds convincing, they might be wrong. People are wrong. In fact, mm. the Adventist 
church holds that nearly everyone's wrong, except <laughs> yeah. for us. So if if being wrong is except for is some a thing of us, that we are, except for some of us, sorry, I think basically except for me. <laughs> That's the danger when, when we strive to follow Christ. It's a fraught exercise. Lewis said that the prayer we should pray before any other prayer is, may it be the real you that I am speaking to, and may it mm. be the real I that speaks. In other words, hmm. before any other request on the prayer, the thing that I want to be most important is, may my picture of, of you, God, be correct, and may my knowledge of myself be correct. If I'm not deceived in those two things, we can at least have a sensible conversation, but it is quite possible I'm deceived in at least one of those things. Yeah, well, this is something, and maybe this is a, a thought that we can wrap up this episode on. One other aspect of the masters that we tend to encounter in our lives is that inspiration factor. Whether it's ins- inspirationally excellent tennis playing or an inspirational wisdom and humility, there, there's a sense in which a master attracts a following just simply because the master, because of their mastery, is inspiring. That's something that I think I see in the ministry of Jesus, and not just in myself, but again, just looking at the history of the Christian church. So many people have found Jesus and his life and ministry on earth, as recorded in the Gospels, to be life-changing, to be inspirational, to be attractive in that profound way. And that, I think, demonstrates a kind of mastery in and of itself. Yeah. I wonder if I might just on on that topic of inspiration share a a personal reflection. One of the events that's been significantly formative in my Christian journey and my walk with God. I was a teenager, thirteen odd years old, and uh, I thought I you were a, going to say thirteen years ago. No, yeah, well, that'd be lovely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, living in Loma Linda in California. And uh, my dad was doing a placement in Northern California. And we went and stayed and went to church and Sabbath school at Pacific Union College. And uh, there was a speaker who was taking the Sabbath school lesson. And I just remember that I sat listening to the theologian speaking about the Sabbath school lesson. I had no idea what the topic was. But I remember that every sentence just rang with clarity and new thought uh, and just expanded the ideas that were in my young teenage mind, blew my mind with uh, new ways of looking at things in the world. And we went to lunch with the speaker and uh, walked in a pine forest near his house, uh, my dad and he and uh, another pastor and the teenage boy walking along behind, listening to these men of God talking of things of God. And I, I remember having the very clear thought as they spoke and having experienced that mind-expanding uh, Sabbath school lesson. Yeah, this is real. They are talking about things that are real. And, well, that lit a spark that ever since, uh, has sometimes burned more brightly than others and sometimes been a simple ember, uh, ember but that I found inspirational. Uh, and Des Ford was the speaker at the Sabbath school uh, lesson and we went to his place for lunch and walked in the forest and, and uh, although 
a source of great controversy in our church. That was an experience for me uh, that uh, lit the spark of a journey with God that's continued uh, to this day and for which I am extremely grateful. Mm. Hmm. Thanks for that story, Ken. I reckon that that's a great story to wrap this episode up mm. on. There's a, obviously a, a lot more to talk about on this, so it's very good that we've got another week. And we might we might uh, line up a few topics. Let's say uh, Christ's expertise. In what sense do we think of him as an expert? We live in a complicated world full of Google Maps and social media and satellites in space. Would Christ be an expert in our world? I also would like to talk about one aspect of mastery that we haven't gotten on to this week, which is that in many fields and in many ways, a lot of the rules that are taught are for the beginners. The true masters don't need them. Mm. And you yes. think of the story of, of Beethoven using parallel fifths when it, it's something that you teach people not to do. When it was pointed out to Beethoven, he said, well, I do it. So there's that aspect too. And uh, I think that there's some interesting stories that can be pulled out about Christ in that context. Of course, one thing that uh, marks a true master is that they can say many complicated ideas in just a few words. So perhaps we have something still to aspire to and we'll work on that over the next week. We're glad you could join us and tune in next week for the next instalment on, on Mastery.